0: Dr. Charles
1: David Hunt is a retired neurosurgeon of over 30 years in medicine. He worked primarily in Newark, New Jersey, and later in Brooklyn, specializing in trauma and cerebrovascular neurosurgery. While in Newark, he was chairman of a bioethics committee, and he later spent a year setting up a vascular center in Marquette, Michigan. Now retired, Dr. Hunt is, as he put it during our conversation, focusing on being a human being, which, in my estimation, he's doing a fine job of. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. David Hunt. good doing <laughs> awesome so i assume those books behind you they're just for show they're all they're all just they're corduroy- all, they're,
2: they're all just for show actually most of those i'm actually sitting at carol's desk right now uh, but they're they're kind of s- semi organized her desk um her desk is nursing and legal um the rest of this is um philosophy religion medicine and god knows what all else uh and then the other room that you can't see back there very well that's all art uh and uh and then there are two more floors of books as well <laughs> you know, three of which i have read <laughs> so so it's good, but Moby Dick is one of them. So I've, I, I've got you beat on that.
1: <laughs> yes. You're, you're ahead of, you're ahead of me by 30 pages. I I gave up 30 pages now reasons I'd love to try to explain, but I don't know if they'd really ever be sufficient.
2: Melville's a very interesting character. I mean, he, he, I, mean I was, I was an English major in college. So, so that that's kind of my, that was kind of my bread and butter. Um, but he was the first great American author, I think. Um, uh, and, and one can one can argue Hawthorne um, as well as, as a predecessor, but 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 Melville was um, was an artist of, of philosophical capsules. And I'm not quite sure how he came to that, but but the the chapter structure of Moby Dick is very interesting because each one, uh, most of the chapters or many of the chapters, I, I, I haven't reread it for a while, but really stand on their own as independent works uh, that are that are sewn together with uh, with the ultimate narrative of uh, obviously of the uh, of the psychopathy of the whiteness of the whale. Um, uh but the uh the attempt to uh to approach the ineffable on the part in which drove him mad so so mm. anyway. anyway you are a history teacher yes
1: now an english teacher
2: oh english okay okay um somehow i somehow i had it in my mind that it was history that you taught the um boy um what is your student population?
1: That's a great question. It's shifted. So I'm an English teacher by trade. And then I've shifted more and more into sort of like a special education space or like a student support capacity. Um, originally through way of being a reading specialist. So okay. studied, studied English, um, studied teaching English, and then sort of carved out a niche teaching doing sort of like a reading intervention program. Um okay. and then that I was doing that at a in a charter school in West Philly. So a predominantly black student population. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching a group of kids who were reading probably like four or five grade levels below grade level. Right. Um, right. And, and that's really where I learned I learned how to like talk about books previously before that, but then I really learned how to teach there. <laughs> Uh, and now I sort of parlayed that into this role here at St. Joe's Prep. Um, so I'm teaching, they're all private school students, um, but it's way more diverse than I think people might imagine. Um, and I'm working sort of in a retention capacity with students who uh, maybe scored a little bit lower on the entrance exam um, for any number of reasons, maybe they're, um Maybe they're from the city. Maybe they're, you know, they come from a charter school background. Um, Maybe they're not used to those entrance exams. Um, You get some scholarship kids, some athletes, some alumni's kids. Um, And what we were finding was anecdotally, we knew that those entrance exam scores didn't solve everything or I'm sorry, didn't determine everything. And some students sort of overperformed their entrance exam score, what their score would have forecasted. Not that we've ever like really run that regression that would be really interesting to see. Um, right. We anecdotally we knew that some kids like really overperformed. They scored low on that entrance exam and then um, did fairly well. And then other kids scored really high on the entrance exam and then really struggled. So they were right. a student support program that sort of addressed that dichotomy. Like why do some kids score really high and then struggle, and then why do kids some kids score kind of low, take one study skills course and then seem to do fine once you give them an agenda book <laughs> or help them organize From their the backpack. A planner or something like that
2: is the ethos of the school um to appreciate learning or to disparage learning Uh, And in particular is the ethos of your of the class that you're asked to to bring up to snuff um to to um encourage or to disparage
1: certainly to encourage it's a jesuit school so historically I think I've no, maybe in five or what, six schools at this point. I think every school has, like, and yeah. I'm sure you could say this about hospitals. Every school sort of is schizophrenic in a sense where <laughs> their identity always seems fractured. Um, and everybody sort yeah. of talks about a certain identity, but the whole school is sort of like trying to reach that. And, and so there are moments where they are that thing and there are moments where they're not. But historically, with the Jesuits, right. they've always been like really intellectually interested. Um, and I think well, where. The- no, no. That's the, that, that's the school's,
2: that's the administration's ethos, and I yes. understand and appreciate that. Uh, what is the student's ethos?
1: <clears throat> that's a really good question. I, in an attempt not to be too diplomatic, I'm sort of this middleman where I think the school's ethos is like intellectual rigor, however we want to define that, and I think that's a deb- debate worth having
0: sometimes yes, yes. sometimes it means a ton of work.
1: It means more reading than they could, they could possibly read. Other times it means like, you know, really holding the bar high, I think in a, in a way that's appropriate um, that might unnerve the students in moments if they're unorganized about it. But other times, I think in hindsight, the kids really appreciate that they were held to that level. Um, yeah. the students' ethos, I think I sort of sit in this weird crossroads where I get kids who want to dismiss the ethos and say, like, this is too hard or. This is too much or I'm studying as hard as I can. But what I find is that they just don't know how to study. They're like just looking at their notes. They're never testing themselves. Um, they just think like time staring at the material is studying and they've never really like, you know, sat in front of a whiteboard and tried to explain the material. They've never really engaged in the material that way. So I think what I up, often up against is this ethos of like just completion, this culture of like, okay, I'm going to the prep. It's a prestigious yeah. school, but all I need to do is go through it and get through it so okay. at, on the yeah. most granular yeah. level that means getting through the lesson that means getting through the homework um, and I sort of encourage kids always to like shift and and obviously to try to facilitate shifting from like this culture of completion to this culture of like quality and interest and engagement um, and I think the yeah. kids I joke with them sometimes they they sometimes become these little like point robots where because uh. they're assignments are online because the points are constantly online you know they they might be failing math but then they'll know exactly what they need <laughs> quarter two in order to pass for the year and they're just sort of like yeah i think at worst they they just try to get through and try to game it uh and i think yeah. if i can do anything and try to make them like intellectually curious
2: right engagement is such a hard thing and and to to get them to to get them to buy into their education is such a hard thing. When I was a a puppy in college, my junior year, I guess, I worked for the ABC program at Amherst, a better chance, uh, which took kids who were going to be going to prep school uh, the next year, but who were coming from uh, uh, underserved communities. Um, And I was the room tutor for four students each each four students had a um, had a a room tutor as well as the classes that went all day long and one of the things that that I'm most proud of in some ways um, (laughs) and it could work it could cut either direction but after a few um, after the first week or so they all started to kibitz at each other, and they all started to put each other down about well, he doesn't know how to do math, he doesn't know how to do English, he doesn't know how to do history. Each of the four students, interestingly, and 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 the process of how to get the students, um, of how the students were, were sorted out into those groups is is a is perhaps a very different process and perhaps chance. Um, but each of the four students had uh, a couple of amazing strengths and a couple of astonishing weaknesses. Uh, and and they were beating on each other for each other's weaknesses to to try to climb up over each other. And finally, I just said, you know what? There's a rule I've got. I'm, I'm here to tutor you guys at night to help you get through your school. I'm happy to do that. That's my job. I want to do it. But I'm not going to teach you guys anything unless none of the four of you know how to do it. If none of you know how to know the answer, I'm happy to tell you the answer because I'm you know, pretty well educated. I sort of know. Um, but you can't even ask me the question until you have asked the other three. And, and it was almost like a light bulb came on for them. Hmm. and they became best friends and they busted their ass and they all worked and they and they they reached out to help each other and and the question and you used the word three or four times when you were talking the word engagement and so the question is how do you engage kids how do you and and part of it is is to to give them their to mirror and, and I've done some little bit of reading on this, but but part of it is is to find something that mirrors their experience. Because you can't engage with something that you that you haven't got the foggiest notion of. I'm not very good at quantum mechanics, I have to admit. You know, I, <laughs> it's just that's just not my thing. And so you gotta find something that the the that the kids can sink into and and that often means um, according to bunches of educators, often means um, uh, culturally appropriate, not just not just reading level appropriate. You can give them a stretch um, uh, for reading level if it's culturally appropriate, because they'll say, "Oh boy, you know, look at how good, look at how good that is." Then and and bring them up, but but so often. And that's why I asked about the, the 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 school ethos and the student ethos. Often those don't match very well, and I'm aware of uh, I'm aware of students, you know, getting lost. It 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 just often happens, and how they how they fall fall by the wayside, and 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 give up, and and how you how you convince them, you know, don't give up just because this thing is hard, you know, it's, uh, there's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. Ignorance is fine. Ignorance means you got something left to learn. That's great. You know, stupid means that you can't learn. Uh, um, You know, difficult means that, you know, means that you're learning something complex. And, And if you can if you can initiate that buy-in with kids, um, uh, then you've got uh, then you've got the the handle because they've got their enthusiasm and and you know if if a monkey needs to to solve a problem it'll invent a tool to solve it with um, and in and it's the same with people uh, if there's something that we want to do we'll find a way to do it. Uh, but it's, but it's inciting that want. There's a, there's a, one of the great old memes is, you know, if you, uh, if you want to teach a man how to sail, teach him to love the sea. You know, yeah. That may even be Melville. I don't think so. but <laughs> uh, Because once, once, once you, you know, once you get that engagement, then the rest of it is simple. It may, you know, it may take one try, or it may take ten tries, um, but it goes from there. But I, I admire you for doing it. It's a very difficult problem, Adam. Uh, as as you know, I, I I presume you've had some discussions with him. Adam uh, struggled with that as well in the in the charter school. Struggled struggled with engagement on kids who you know, hadn't eaten breakfast or dinner for for weeks and with kids who, you know, who lost a friend on the block, you know, the last week, you know, to gunshots and, you know, and to, to be able to somehow get somebody like that to engage is a, you know, is an astonishingly difficult problem. You know? I'm interested in what what other insights you might have, how you do that. Sorry, I'm yeah Causing no, myself
1: occasionally too. to cough. Me too. I I don't know if my insight in I don't know if my insights are going to come in any form other than questions. <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> so, so I have two threads I want to pull on. The one is um, this idea of if you have a problem, you're going to solve. You're going to create a tool in order to you know solve that problem. I th- and I if might you have, have a, a problem
2: you want. If you have a problem, you want to solve.
1: That's right. I think what's interesting yeah. is sometimes the problem that we, the royal we pose to kids is an incentive structure of, you know, that sort of culture of completion that I alluded to earlier where it's like, right. the problem which that is, most kids are posed with is, is not necessarily becoming intellectually curious or loving to see, as you sort of said, but yeah, which I how love to pass by the way. The, how,
2: to, how, to pass the, how to pass the class. and that's, Yeah,
1: that's and they do, they do create tools, right? They, yep. They'll do the bare minimum to sort of jump through that hoop or you know the bare minimum might not be fair but they will they, they will point their uh critical functions towards solving that problem of jumping through the hoop not necessarily loving the right. see or engaging in the material or asking good right. questions right um so that's my first i get i guess that's my first insight is um that i think if i would encourage educators maybe coming into the field or you know those who have been there really anybody, is like, think about that C question of like, how do you get kids to love the C? And I do right. think that the cheapest answer to that that I can imagine is, and perhaps it's cheap, I'm not sure, is I think that students are really imitative in nature. Um, there's all sorts of really interesting theorists from Piaget to Vygotsky to Montessori who, who obsess over the power of imitation in the classroom. And and it would be very really interesting to maybe think about like mirror neurons (laughs) and like even that innate capacity to imitate um but i do think that if i can model anything there's so much to be said for modeling in the classroom and modeling this approach or that but if i can model anything it's like model an actual interest in the material in in being intellectually curious in that sort of love of the sea if you if you lead with that i do think that's like the first step towards getting a student to actually engage in, in what we want them to engage in, as opposed to right. just sort of solving those problems to get the grades, to appease the parents, to, to move to the next step and so on and so forth. I think right. I love this idea of um, TS Eliot has the wasteland and one interpretation of that wasteland poem is like, <laughs> it's just all people doing things that they think they're supposed to do. And I think sometimes in schools, I find that, you know, a lot of times we go, create- speaking things, of my- angelo yes right (laughs) we we create these structures of like okay here kid here's what you're supposed to do and then the kid does that and then they realize they're not sort of fulfilled by it teachers aren't really fulfilled by the kid doing that and not being fulfilled by it and you sort of get this like wasteland motif emerging where it's like everybody's just i have to grade the paper he has to write the paper i have to assign the paper right (laughs) and you never really get um, the c thing
2: Yeah, the, I, God, Elliot is, is, is so wonderful. And yet the, um, the drawing room is a foreign place to many of the students. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Is a, is a, isn't, isn't an accessible concept. Um, You know. Uh, you know, I, I shall wear my trousers rolled. You know, and I hear the mermaids sing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing for me. What a, thank God! What what astonishing, astonishing language I got for Christmas um, at my request. Dylan's new book, uh, which mm. I, uh, you know, the Zimmerman kid, uh, which I. Um, which I really look forward to reading his uh, his first book. Um, I, I really do think that he deserves the Nobel Prize. Richly deserves the Nobel hmm. Prize, uh, and and his music is so well um, is so well crafted emotionally, um, with hints and allegations, as they say that it. That it, um, that it comes through things. Anyway, my my other current obsession, which is very interesting, I own a, a class list served from my college class, uh, which is run by uh, someone who's become a, a good friend of mine. And we have been obsessing about chat GPT. Are you up to speed on that at all? I, I'm
1: certainly not up to speed. In fact, this is only the third time I've heard of it. I had a, a buddy of mine reference it. And then I saw it in an educational memo This like he consolidates all this research and he just sort of mentioned it. Um, so I'm not up to you speed were, at all. I don't even actually know what it is. It's like a chat bot, right?
2: It's a chat bot, but it's actually, it it, it is a fairly sophisticated chat bot which constructs um, responses in a Clearly familiar formulaic kind of way, uh, but does it with um, uh, with good uh, grammar, with good completion. But it is it is a task completion algorithm and not a uh, not an affirmative action or or interest uh, in the chatbot. And and so for me, I, I we've been. <laughs> what Bob did was he took one of our uh, one of our posts to the to the group, and ran it through Chatbot. And he said, you know, Chatbot, what do you think about this? And then the Chatbot gave a response, and he published that to the group. And then there was a response from the group, and he published that to Chatbox and said, what do you think? And we've gone through a few iterations of that. And now I think he's a, he's he's an artist too. I think he's in the middle of passing the same res, the chatbot response directly back through chatbot and see how it iterates down as time goes on. And I suspect that it will iterate to absolute entropy, to absolute nothingness, meaninglessness, um, because it doesn't have any intent behind it. it doesn't have a love of the sea, if you will. Um, and, and I think that that's important, but I think it's also, uh, fortunately or unfortunately going to be important to you, um, that the times had an editorial a, a week or so ago. Uh, I think it's going to be important to you because you are going to start getting papers that are minimally modified, uh, chatbot, um, uh, Uh, output and learning to recognize it and learning to to perceive both its uh, strength it's it's strength is it's kind of a wrong word because i disparage it so much Uh, but its utility and its disutilities are important its strength is it is is what it does it has it has a vast data set that it has analyzed. And so the responses come back on the one hand, on the other hand, and therefore, you know, that's the the three-paragraph SAT algorithm, you know, that is that is teachable to get kids into good schools. Um, you know, unfortunately, fortunately. Um, but it will the recommendation that came out of this one of the things that came out of it and it might have been an essay in the atlantic too damned if i remember anyway um was was that the solution to it may be oral exams it's very interesting uh and and inciting real conversation i, I, I a, a classroom in some ways ought to be structured mayhem <laughs> uh, rather, than, rather than talking at kids, you know, you, know, what do you, you know, what do you think he meant by that? Or she meant by that? Or you know, or they meant by that, for God's yeah. sake. God. I'm not politically correct, unfortunately, or fortunately. Uh, but but um, I think that's going to be a problem and an opportunity to test real knowledge uh in and the ability not just to uh disgorge information, to vomit up information, but to process information. Uh because without testing the processing, the disgorging has become too easy now. Chatbot is good enough that the pure disgorging of information has become too easy, I think, in some ways. So okay. So I think that that will be a challenge of yours going forward. And my, um, you probably know that, that uh, my daughter's, um, my eldest daughter's uh, husband is a is a gallerist uh, in the city, and he is doing stuff with uh, 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 with computer generated art as well, and working on that. And some of it is is lurid and overdone and silly. Um, some of it is interesting. At its best, I think it suggests interesting ideas for more complex work. Um, at its worst, it's just purely derivative in a way that uh, that even Picasso would be ashamed of. <laughs> you know, Picasso Picasso said, "You know, great artists borrow good artists borrow, great artists steal," <laughs> which right. is a it's a great line, great line. But but so so how to how to engage interest is always the question. How to engage and how to sustain um, interest because once they once once they've kindled properly once once they're once they really get started. Uh, you just you just let them run and let, let them explain their their fascinations to you uh, and do things and it doesn't and it works it's pretty generalizable through most fields it seems to me I mean, it, it was part of teaching residents as well how to do it you know watching the just watching and encouraging the discoveries on things anyway, anyway.
1: there's no shortage of things that the concern the chat what is it gpt
2: uh chat gpt i think yeah yeah
1: concerning the chat gpt thing i think we've been fooling ourselves i i think that the onset of this new technology is a is a great forcing function for us to reconsider things that i, I think are probably long overdue um we're kidding ourselves if they aren't already using <clears throat> technology in a way to right. out, outsource thinking which is really what we want to right. promote and I more and more, especially with this chat GPT thing, and you alluded to this with. um, With the sort of oral exam suggestion, I, I'm all about sort of limiting the variables. If I want to know what a student knows, I have them stand in front of me and stand in front of the class. And there might be. Yeah, there might be the argument of there. Well, there's the the variable of nerves and the pressure. OK, fine. Put him in a room by himself with me. Uh, in front of a whiteboard, make the student comfortable, and then have him explain what he knows. Um, and I think if you if you need to do that on scale, then it looks like just a you know old school in class essay and a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil uh, and no technology. So I I think a lot of times I'm talking to teachers of like, well, what do you want the student to know or be able to do, and how do you know that they know that thing or that they can do that thing? And I think a lot of times teachers look to homework as being a reinforcement. And it's, I, I often say it's its only the most academically mature and intellectually mature students who are actually going to get what they need to get out of homework. Uh, they don't view right. it as practice. The majority of kids don't view it as practice that, you know, practice to test themselves and they don't know to sort of do it with, with minimal notes and only use notes as needed <laughs> and to simulate the yeah. test environment. They don't, you know, they don't use it that way. They see it as something that needs to get done. And if it's only being graded for completion, then they're just going to put ink on the page with the exception of a few very, very rare students who are motivated to to actually get the practice that's intended out of that thing. Um, So I'm all for sort of oral exam or the the graded debate. I do these Socratic seminars in class all the time. And you said, you know, classes should be like organized chaos. In my English class, I I stole this from a... A colleague of mine in my graduate program but she has two kids and she told this story about there's a lot of debate now that i've told the story a few times whether or not it's apple juice or, or water but the idea is the same she goes and she picks up her five-year-old at kindergarten or whatever it is and she notices that the kids are pouring their own apple juice and you know they're using their little bodies to like pour this huge thing <laughs> and she says well, to the teacher don't, aren't you cleaning up apple juice all the time? And the teacher said, yeah, in, in September I am. But, you know, eventually they learn how to do it. And I sort of tell the kids like, look, these are the rules of the Socratic seminar. Nobody raises their hands. Nobody talks over each other. If if you do accidentally talk over somebody, then you should like use deference and defer to them. If you are going to speak, you should speak directly to what was said last. Uh, you should talk to people by name and that kind of thing. So I just try to like incentivize, you know, good debate and conversation. But at first, there's like a lot of spilled apple juice and it's kids like being nervous, being rude to each other, cutting each other off. One kid dominating the conversation and I just keep doing it and and give them some space for feedback and debrief at the end. But slowly but surely, but, you know, by May or June, it's like it's like a well-oiled machine and the debates are great. And even, you know, by now, by December, the debates are really, really good in that class. So I agree. I, I think that um, I love the organized chaos idea. And yeah. I also think it's, it's all about in lieu of direct engagement, it's all about ownership. Like, can I put a student on yeah. the spot and have them actually engage in the material? And even if that's anxiety provoking at first, uh, they're going to get better at it, just like anybody's going to get, you know, better at right. anything with reps. I yes. think too often we, we, we give kids the opportunity to do things with way too many variables and resources. And I don't blame the kid, the 14-year-old who who outsources it to Google or outsources it to SparkNotes or outsources the thinking to ChatGPT. I think it's the teacher's job right. to sort of outline the problem correctly and say, okay, my part of my problem is that they can do those things and that they have every incentive to use those resources. And I need to limit. I need to limit those variables and and sort of like make sure that my environment in that class is sort of distilled of those things.
2: How do you deal with bullying in the class, and and particularly in in um, uh, in the Socratic forum, uh, because the tendency to bullying is is strong in adolescence. Yeah.
1: So one of the things I say in that in going into those Socratic seminars is I'm not going to intervene. And you put yourself in a really difficult corner where if there is anything like bullying or domineering in the conversation or, you know, dismissing or disparaging, you put yourself in a difficult place because you don't want to have to intervene because you said you won't. Uh, I've gotten better at saying I'll intervene minimally (laughs) and sort of reserving the right to intervene if I have to. But what I found is if I default to really letting them sort themselves out and I give them the whole story about the spilled apple juice and, you know, the aspiration to sort of like aspire to an adult intellectual conversation, um, there is a little sense of pride. Like, okay, we can do this. We can do this without Mr. Gregorio intervening. That's sort of cooked in from what I've observed. But if there is ever a moment where a student is like a little harsh or dismissive, if I do anything. If I make a face or go like this with my hands and sort of suggest a kid tamps it down a little bit, um, it means the world because I'm not saying anything. <laughs> so I think the kids take it really personally. If a kid feels like he's really running the show and then he, he's kind of disparaging to a kid. If I say like even just give him this hand, um, you can yeah. kind of tell it, it really affects the kid because I default to no feedback. And if the kid requires some feedback, he's kind of like, oh, shoot, like I've transgressed something. I, and, I've and
2: I really over the bounds that's interesting
1: and i think that's I think socially if you're if you're at a dinner party and you say something and you see, you see that its effect was negative on someone's face um you yeah. know like the, the correct response is that we're sort of informed socially so i think there's a corrective function there you're like oh shoot like i made that person feel the way i didn't intend or you know, I thought I was going to say something smart, but I ended up saying something that was actually, you know, disparaging or w- whatever the word might be. Um, I think yeah. sometimes that's my function. If the, if the kid who is the recipient of the harsh thing, if he doesn't show that on his face in a way that's corrective, then I'm sort of like the, the face of the room. And I'm like, yeah, that was a little harsh. <laughs>
2: and the Greek. I, court. <laughs>
1: that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Interesting.
2: Interesting. The, um, the the dinner party comparison is very interesting to me on that. That I mean, it, in in some ways, it's all about socialization, but socialization in the right way. And we have been, as a society, I think, disocialized so much recently politically. Uh, in ways that are harmful to society, harmful to the environment, harmful to the, you know, harmful to the world, uh, and and how to how to carve out a space that that allows for a localized correction. That can then act as a as a seed for um, for social correction is an interesting question. It's all about i one 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 could argue that it's all about being woke and and I actually like that word, but that's a whole different argument. Um, <laughs> but but. Um, uh, but how to do it and make it work when there is so much bullying going on all around us all the time right now it's just I, I am I am dispirited to a significant extent by that and I I am without a solution to it uh, except that except that you try to tend the tend the garden you know think you know Act locally, think globally. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's
1: tough. It's tough. No, I agree. On rare occasion, after one of those Socratic seminars, I've had to say, you know, the bell rings, everybody's sort of shuffling out, and I'll say, Hey Tommy, can I see you for a second? <laughs> and again, when when the the threshold is so high, the tolerance level is so high, not necessarily of bullying, but for kids starting to figure it out, like you know. Right. A, a kid might dominate the conversation for 15 or 20 minutes of a 50 minute class. And I really want the kids to navigate that space because I want you to figure out, all right, sure. We're talking about Oedipus, (laughs) but we're also learning how to deal with it. You know, a kid is going to just try to steal the show or talk too much. And, and I, and I want that for the kids who are going to be reserved. And I also want that for the kid who's going to talk too much um, or, 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 you know, not treat his classmates well or whatever you want to say on rare occasion, I've had to say, Tommy, Hey, let me see you for a second. And it's hilarious when when your bar is, I'm not going to say anything. And at the end of the class, (laughs) I'm going to call the kid over. I've had the kid come over to me and be like, I know, I'm so sorry. I got caught up. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, cool. What are you, what are you going to do for next time? And he's like, I'm, I got nervous. I wasn't going to get my points. So, and I didn't prepare a lot. So I'm going to prepare a little bit more. So I'm more confident. It's like, great. That's, that's awesome. Yeah
2: very interesting uh, what uh, grade levels do you teach now
1: that english class is uh, junior so 11th grade and then i teach a freshman junior. study oh, skills yeah. course so and then i work with 9 through 12 in sort of an academic support capacity but in the classroom i'm yeah. looking at freshmen and, and juniors
2: okay 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 yeah I, I i i i perfectly approve of teaching oedipus but that is not a that is not a trivial early undertaking for me
1: <laughs> well i was going to ask you earlier you said this you emphasized the importance of like cultural relevance and my i was interested no. how do you sort of define cultural relevance and obviously in my case we're talking about an english classroom but you know you could probably scale that out how do you think about cultural relevance actually that's, that's a good
2: question to ask but um in 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 um let me see if i can get that cancelled
1: you want to bring them into the call we can have a three-way conversation here
2: (laughs) no that's that's that is our home phone which we effectively never answer we use it as an answering machine and if somebody (laughs) actually has to get through to us once every couple weeks i check the messages Mm. and for an emergency, you know, a hurricane when the, when the, when the phones are out, you know, when the cell phone towers are down, then I'll use them. So, um, um, uh, cultural relevance in terms of, you know, one can argue that, that one does not have to be a um, one-legged, one-eyed pirate to write about one-legged, one-eyed pirates. Um, but but if um, uh, but uh, teaching Ralph Ellison to minority classes, teaching um, uh, teaching uh, black poets, modern poets, teaching James Baldwin, uh, who is an astonishingly uh, strong intellect, um, I think. Can can help students to identify. They they say he's like me. We're not just teaching the, and and I don't mean to disparage you at all. We're not just teaching the Greek canon or the Roman canon or the uh, or the Anglo-Saxon canon or the or the burnt saga canon. You know, <laughs> it it um, but but teaching from. From other experiences, other traditions. One of the one of the shelves back there uh, is largely dedicated to myths from around the world, hmm. uh, and and I sort of collect books that 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 talk about um, uh, that talk about the myths of different cultures, uh, and I'm I'm not enough of a linguist to to do it in the original very often, unfortunately. Uh, but, but it is useful to perceive that there are different perspectives and different ways of looking at the world. That that the glasses that we look through are the glasses of our uh, of our acculturation, uh, but that that acculturation. Largely and particularly for white males is is an, uh, in the U.S. is an Anglo-Saxon acculturation, which does not share the values, um, the, the the Confucian values of of, of of deference and respect as much. I mean, we are much more individualist, and that's not. In and of itself, necessarily a bad thing, uh, but we tend to disparage um, cooper co- cooperativity. God only knows what the word is I'm looking for. We we tend to disparage um, cooperation, or or at least value it less than the um, Marlborough man who died of lung cancer. You know, it, it, it's a it's a very interesting problem, and the more you look at at different cultures and different ways of seeing, the the more you perceive respect for different kinds of values. I think, um, uh, and and the more it becomes clear that the that the rank ordering of values is a matter of acculturation and not on and not of uh, ethical necessity uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's clearly making the point but uh, once you once you recognize that you're coming from a different um, perspective then you can do something about it I, I loved your example talking to the kid you said you know, you know, hey, you know, stay back. Yeah, I know I I I, I, I took it too far. He, he knew but he couldn't stop himself. But but now that he allowed now that he is allowed to say I couldn't stop myself in a safe way, then it gives him the opportunity to modulate his behavior because he has stepped outside. Is acculturation, which is um, you know home-based and school-based and everything else-based, giving people the opportunity to see from outside is important. Anyway, some of my experiences uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I spent a year in France, and and I learned about the ugly American in a way that astonished me. I, I was I was ashamed. To be, uh, to be an American in Paris as a as a fourteen year old kid, uh, be because of the, well they don't speak English, attitude (laughs) of of many American tourists, and so you know I'd I'd be wandering around and somebody would say, doesn't anybody speak English here? Mums the word. I'm getting as far away from that as I can. Mm. I was sort of as a as a German kid, I, I, I clearly wasn't French, but I, you know, it could have been most anything. But, but, but creating the safe space within which people are allowed to grow is a really important thing, and that's that's really the teacher's, uh, that's the great teacher's gift. Um, you know, it sounds like you're right on target on that. It's a good thing.
1: Well, you'd have to ask my supervisors. I think (laughs) I'm not going to make myself sound like a bad teacher.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know, I know. But supervisors don't even necessarily know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe the kids, maybe the kids.
2: The kids know. The kids know. The kids know because the kids know. The kids know where they feel valued. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's obvious to me that you have this. You know, I love this idea of the love of the sea. It's its obvious to me that you have this deep love of the sea, so to speak. Um, you seemingly have a deep intellectual curiosity. I'm curious who your models were for that. A, a lot of our conversation ha- is built on the premise that all of this curiosity, all of this love of the sea is not necessarily innate and that it can be taught. Do, do you remember who taught you those things?
2: a great question um i i think i'm cur- if i were to list my rank order values curiosity would be very very close to the top um and pure raw intellect would be close to the top and i was taught to value that and i believe as i grow older um that i was taught to overvalue it uh, mm-hmm. because I. Believe that I. Um, I believe that my uh, IQ is disproportionately out of frame compared to my EQ, and I more and more value those who value uh, compassion over uh, over intellect or precision. Uh, although I, I do that from a proudly and deliberately precise sort of way, which is a, which is a weird paradox. I think I learned it from my father, who in some ways was a, uh, was a very bright guy. And, and he had always, he had always been bullied when he was a kid. He was a little guy when he was a kid, he used to say. And so he learned it by, uh, he learned to, to overcome things with his mind rather than, uh, rather than with his body and instilled that in many ways upon us. Uh, but it was, that's, that's a confrontative style that is not necessarily, that, that is far from the most use- useful style often. It's far from the most effective. Style often hmm. and effective can be both a, a bad word in that it's inherently transactional, but it can also be a good word in in that if you want to get if if you want to achieve a goal, uh, then being effective just means uh, getting to the goal in the end. And if the goal is just a sterile um, intellectual precision operating on nothing of significance, then you know, then then you're left in a uh, in a jobian pile of dung you know and it's um, um so so it's a it's a hard question and it, it, I like it it's the it, it's the one that I'm trying to work around I'm, I'm trying one of the things I said after I retired from neurosurgery people said, well, what are you gonna do now?" I said "I'm going to try to learn to become human <laughs> uh, you know I, I I had learned to be tough, mm. I had learned to be decisive I had learned to be you know uh, uh, I had learned where the buck stopped and it was always with me and I don't disparage that uh, but it also left me uh, bereft of um, some kinds of interaction uh, which I regret Lily has taught me a lot about that by the way mm. you know, um, she and um, uh, she and John and even your incisive questions are all teach that you have a you have a different way of um, core values and if, if you were to line up your your 20 values pure intellect or pure curiosity would be high I'm sure but it wouldn't probably wouldn't be at the top where would you put them how would you rank over the year sorry one
1: second <laughs> no. I, I want to recommend a book but I have to sorry if i was out of the microphone there i I okay. want to recommend a book but it's a really difficult book to recommend because it's because of the title the title is so suggestive uh-huh. so i don't mean anything disparaging when i recommend a book called em- an emotional education <laughs> it's oh okay it, it's by um this philosopher named alan de i could probably get you a What's copy that? of this by the way um and i i used to think it was called an emotional ed- yeah it's called an emotional education Um. The School of Life and Emotional Education. It's by Alan DeBotton, And he I don't even know if I could possibly give a good introduction to the whole book. But there's this one chapter uh, that I was thinking about when you were talking about strengths and weaknesses. And Uh he often he says in the essay or in that chapter that we're often taught to think about our strengths as things that we want to strengthen and our weaknesses as things that we have to reckon with. And right. he, he talks about the, the pros and cons to that attitude. Um, you can compensate for your weaknesses in ways, you know, like a, after you retire, you can say, OK, I'm going to shift towards those things that maybe I, I was neglecting or maybe maybe I didn't get to whatever, however you want to frame it. Um, but he offers an, another way of looking at your strengths and weaknesses, which I, I think could be <laughs> a bit of a, a way out. But I, I don't necessarily see it that way. He, he argues that your strengths are your weaknesses. Um, and the, the easiest way I can right. maybe, the easiest way I right. can maybe pose this is my girlfriend, Lauren, um, when she probably first started dating me, she was like, Oh my God, Kevin is so thoughtful. Like he just thinks all the time. That's so sweet. <laughs> and now she's probably like, if, can you stop thinking? <laughs> you, you Can you just <laughs> turn it off for one second? Right. And, and I think that, um, I think to really think about your strengths and weaknesses as two sides of the same coin, not to sound cliche, but right, e- even right, that they right. are the same thing. So if you're like, hey, my strengths are uh, I'm really precise. The buck stops with me. Yeah. I can be really decisive. Uh, I can think in, you know, 60, 40 decisions. If it's a 60 percent chance, I'm going to go with that, even if I'm neglecting the 40. Um, i think if you then just flip that around it's like well okay well what are the weaknesses of that well i think if those are your strengths they're going to usher in certain almost necessary weaknesses right right if you're yep. really decisive yep. then then maybe i don't know what the word is i don't want to speak for you but but maybe it's like maybe that comes across as being really cold right um yeah well so, a surgeon's
2: credo is often wrong but never in doubt
1: wow yeah that, that's wild <laughs> I was going to ask yeah, you, did, it, it, did you think that your profession selected for certain. Um,
2: yes. Certain personalities uh, that
1: but, maybe you now look back and want to correct for. It's, uh,
2: that, that's a bit of an interesting question. Whether and I I'm sorry if that's suggestive. No, no, that's fair. Uh, whether I chose the profession or whether the profession chose me. Uh, yeah, well, and, you know, that
1: the uh, word. Vocation, into the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Voca, uh, yeah, that's right.
2: Whether, whether, I was, um, whether I was groomed into it despite my father's really hard work not to hmm. force me in the direction. And, and he said he left all avenues open. He was a neurosurgeon too. Hmm. Um, and and uh, I think it both chooses and reinforces. Uh, and that is a that is a very mixed blessing, and that's why surgeons are often considered cold. You know, because you know, because if you're, you know, if if you don't if you don't turn your head when you walk through blood and feces, then you know, then you're probably not a very nice guy. You know, and so it goes. You know, <laughs> somebody's got to do it, uh, hmm. and it's and and so it's it's funny how the how the balance plays out, but that, that tends to amplify itself over the course of, uh, over the course of the career, uh, and, and unwinding that and, and looking at other perspectives and, and, and other ways. Show me the front of that book again. Let me write it down. And I'll include it
1: in an email when I follow up with you.
2: Okay, great.
1: It's called yeah. the school of life and emotional education, um, by Alan DeBotton. Yeah. I mean, he has all sorts of YouTube lectures and videos. Um, I used to say, "Yeah, he's a YouTube philosopher," and that. And I found that people's faces would change when I would say that. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, now he's yeah, an author, so I can say that.
2: <laughs> now he's an author. That's right. <laughs> oh yeah, he's
1: he's not. He, he wrote he's not
2: just a yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: the uh yeah the world's a the world's a funny place the um uh the hypothesis that um uh, i don't know how much you know about pharmacology uh <laughs> we were talking assume about, very little I <laughs> <laughs> was we talking to Lily earlier today about um um, the concept of erasure and how, how different members of society or groups in society are, are ignored, uh, forgotten, uh, not, not adversely regarded, but simply not regarded as groups. And so their contributions are not
1: celebrated
2: as part of the flow of the contributions to society as a whole. Well. This is a, a long introduction to a to a fairly short story, and and that is do you know who invented digitalis?
1: Do I know who invented what was the word?
2: Digitalis heart medicine. You, you may yeah,
1: I know don't know. I, <laughs> I don't even anyway, know what digitalis is, so, so I don't, don't know
2: who... <laughs> heart medication. I think the guy's name is Dr. Robert Fletcher. Well, turns out that he was. Uh, a, a, a fancy Seville Row or whatever uh, London physician uh, who was known as a heart specialist. And back in those days, uh, being a heart specialist meant that you treated dropsy or congestive heart failure by bloodletting. You know, mm-hmm. you get rid of some blood and that way you get rid of the evil humors, and it's a bad thing. Sure. And he started to notice... That a bunch of his patients seemed to be getting better on their own, and he scratched his head and looked around and asked the patients, and they said, "Oh yeah, we go to this wicked woman, mm. you know, who gives us foxglove leaf, which is the uh, which is where digitalis is derived from."
0: You mm. know,
2: well, so 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 they went to this witch lady. Uh, who gave him foxglove leaf, who cured their congestive heart failure. Mm. And he took credit for it. Oh. Not, not, and that's the, to my mind, the point of the story, not the, not the Wiccan woman, not the, not the folk knowledge,
0: mm.
2: which is often the, the real knowledge, the core knowledge, um, or the origin of the knowledge. Uh, but the, the packaged knowledge of the of the fancy physician, um, and so trying to discriminate what is um, what is truly of value versus what is snake oil, because there are lots of snake oil salesmen around too. Uh, you know, and 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 by the way, snake venoms are used in some cures as well nowadays but that's a it's kind of a whole different story it's a question of isolating things out and understanding what it is that is you're dealing with but the original observations are are often buried deep in the culture and and that's why i like myths as well is i think that myths are um are those distilled observations with uh, with multiple shrouds of hagiography hey, laid over them often. Anyway.
1: Hmm. anyway. Huh. Can I, uh, well, I want to ask you a really leading question, but I might save it. Are you good on time right now, by the way? I'm good on time, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was my question before I got distracted by the idea of my other one? Neurosurgery. <laughs> hmm. I'm, I'm at a loss now. Oh this I excuse this for being a little disparate but I think I don't talk to neurosurgeons quite a bit um I don't not not often at all you might be the first <laughs> and uh <laughs> that might be a good sign actually
2: um one doesn't wish to <laughs> yeah
1: exactly when i talked to when i talked to other medical people friends whoever um people that maybe are less specialized in medicine, Mm -hmm. often the conversation becomes like, all right, they they sort of lament the ability to offer a a sort of cure, um, but it's not necessarily systemic. It doesn't address the person's behaviors that might have led to that thing in the first place. Um, You know, like obesity would be like a really, a really easy straw man example. But I'm curious in your line... Neurosurgery, I would imagine there's less culpability. Um, Maybe there are some habit stuff there. Maybe there's some, you know, the person's actions might have facilitated some of their crisis that they maybe you're addressing. But I imagine a lot of it's out of their control. I'm curious what your perspective might be compared to maybe nurses or less specialized doctors who might sometimes think about people's actions causing their ailments. I'm curious what your perspective is. Maybe dealing with a lot of people who, who it just seems like a numbers thing or a luck thing or whatever you might want to say. Just the the randomness of life that might have landed them on your doorstep. I I think that is that too confusing of a question. I can I can take another stab. Um, I?
2: No, I, I I think I understand the 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 question, but the issue is that. That randomness isn't random. Chaos is not chaotic. Chaos is incompletely understood organization. Um, hmm.
0: the, uh, are,
2: are you familiar with the theory of the butterfly effect? That yes, the butterfly just Yeah, on, the, on the, the Tibetan plateau causes the hurricane in, sure. in the Caribbean uh, through modulate through atmospheric modulations, micro modulations that then. Accumulate and, and the waves superimpose, and yada yada. And I deeply believe that that is true about um, about chaos and, and incidental stuff. That as a vascular neurosurgeon, I mean, I could often partially blame things on obesity and smoking and hypertension. And the hypertension I could often blame, I like, I worked in a in a predominantly uh, black hospital uh, for most of my career in Newark. Uh, and was proud to do it, uh, but also had a very high population of um, hypertensive people who blew aneurysms. So it meant that I um, that I had a lot of work there uh, because they were hypertensive. Well, why were they hypertensive? Partly because of diet, partly because of Partly because of stress, partly because of the epigenetics of of an ignored population uh, that had been disparaged, beaten down, enslaved, uh, and minimized um, for hundreds of years uh, that led to epigenetic modulation of systemic response to stress and internalization of of response to social stress, which leads to hypertension, which leads to disease. Well, I ended up, uh, I was actually a political science major for three years, graduated as an English major, and then went on to medicine. Um, And I ended up deciding, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Ended up deciding that, that I couldn't solve all the problems. I couldn't be a politician that, Mm. that, that many of the things that, that I believe to be true, I cannot demonstrate to be true. And I also cannot um, modulate. Mm. So, so what I ended up doing was deciding that I would modulate those things that were modulable. That were, that, that were changeable. And that, that ultimately led me into a very, very um, narrow specialty in some ways. Um, but it doesn't mean that I disregard uh, the... Um, uh, Reagan's term was the shining city on a hill, although I'm not a Reaganite. Uh, but but it doesn't mean that I disregard the uh, the social elements of all of them. One of the interesting things about neurosurgery, it seems to me, and this may or may not be true, but it's the thing that always interested me. In in, in what I used to say when people ask me why, I used to say, well, it gives me the best spectator seat on consciousness mm. that I can that I can think of, um, and 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 consciousness sort of writ large and writ large including social interaction and, and uh, relationships and and uh, and and all of that and it is um, it was fun it was fun <laughs> uh, do other people get the same thing if I wasn't a neurosurgeon what would I have done I'd have probably been either... I was also... I worked my way through graduate school as a photographer for a while. Hmm. Uh, and I... Um, I might have been a software engineer. wouldn't surprise me, or I might have been a hardware engineer. Interesting. Um, both of those intrigued me sufficiently that, um, that I could probably happily have ended up there i would have probably been some kind of an engineer because i am sufficiently asocial because of my upraising that um that i would have ended up in a relatively non-public facing field in some ways mm. does that make sense yeah well, again this the strength is the weakness the weakness is the strength it's
1: it's yeah. it's That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you probably don't even need to read the book. I think you get it. <laughs> it <laughs> well, took me a few a, chapters it, to understand it.
2: <laughs> it
1: it it's
2: absolutely the case, but but how to uh, how to then actuate it properly is the difficult thing and um uh Adam, for sure, and probably even Lily could attest to my anger management issues and other things like that. (laughs) I still still am able to go from zero to 60 in in an astonishingly short period of time on occasion.
1: Well, if you were Um, a car, that would be a strength.
2: If I were a car, that would be a strength, unless I ran into a brick wall, in which case (laughs) it would probably be (laughs) So yeah, and, and sometimes it's useful and sometimes it's not. And um and, and it's the, the flip sides of the same coin, which is which is mm. terrific. So anyway.
1: I want you. to circle back to my to my question <laughs> that I alluded to and, and then bailed from, but it seems less leading now. You mentioned a um a sort of deterministic attitude with the whole butterfly effect and And chaos isn't chaos and randomness isn't randomness. It's misunderstood order. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating foundation, I think.
2: misunderstood, incompletely understood. I I would correct
1: that. Sure, sure. Um, Anyway. uh, (laughs) I'm I'm happy with an editor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I need one always. Um, Where was I going with that? Those suggestions towards determinism are an interesting foundation maybe for this next question, and maybe they would render it not useful asking, but it seems you've made enough references to myth and and folk wisdom um, for me to wonder. I'm curious the trajectory, and and this is a massive question potentially, and there's a million ways I could ask it um, as I come up on the second minute of trying to ask it. I'm curious about the the effect of your career on maybe your religious attitudes or your spiritual attitudes, the counterfactual of like, well, would you be more or less spiritually inclined if you did something else? Seems like a difficult question to ask, but I'm curious. I would imagine that most, this is perhaps a stereotype, but my guess would be that a career medicine, especially as specialized as your career was would render people more atheistic um than not but you've made enough references to a to a i don't know an appreciation for a folk wisdom or uh maybe like this this witch woman or that shamanism thing i'm curious if there was a moment where you became uh more deterministic and then and then if that ever sort of gave way to a more spiritual appreciation for life or i don't know how else to describe it one of the first times. And you'll forgive me for that not really being a question.
2: No, that's a, that's, I, I understand the question. One of the first times I saw God uh, was when a um, physiology professor explained the renal, uh, the, the kidney countercurrent multiplier effect in the modulation of uh, electrolyte balance. Um, the, I am not at all religious, not at all. Although I appreciate some of the uh, social undertakings of religious organizations. Uh, and I appreciate some of the aspirational architecture and, and iconography. Uh My spirituality um, and and, and I I can't speak for others, uh, for other dogs. Um, I am I'm not an atheist. I am not uh, agnostic. I tremble before the complexity of the universe uh, And if there is a singularity that singularity by definition encompasses the entirety of the universe and that complexity is so far beyond our understanding that for me to presume that I can put words or constraints on it is the most idolatrous of possible idolatrous and blasphemous of all possible actions. So that kind of leaves me there. Can I t- tell you a story? One of Please my favorite
1: do. I, that was a great answer, by the way. Great
2: thing. The um, So a a, um, a Sufi holy man is standing on top of a hill speaking to a djinn, a, a genie, um, we would call them. Uh, and they're just mm, chatting, passing the time of day. and. The um, the jinn says, oh, look down there in the valley. And, and in the valley, walking out of the house uh, is, a, is a young man proudly carrying, proudly leading the cow that he's going to take to market uh, and to sell uh, that will bring him and his widowed mother great wealth. Uh, And he leaves his shack and they hug and he walks around the hill, the young man. And the jinn looks down and strikes the mother dead.
0: Hmm.
2: And the Sufi master, a a great master to be able to even confront a jinn in, in person, says, what have you done? you made me lose all, all faith. What a terrible thing. And, and the jinn says, wait. And a couple minutes later, running around from the hill, or running back around the hill in the direction that the sun had disappeared, uh, are a couple of villagers who have come to tell the mother that their son has been uh, beset by bandits and killed and that she was left destitute and alone. Hmm. And the jinn looks at the Sufi master and says, God is great. God is hmm. generous. Now, to, to <laughs> to 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 presume that i could that i can speak for uh, the universe is is blasphemous is the ultimate heresy to presume that i can keep trying to figure it out is the ultimate in curiosity. I mean, what a wonderful thing we've got this huge playground that we that we can, you know, look around and tickle at and try and figure out. But 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 intellect is not the only intellect. Intellect too is just a tool. Is not the only tool. Uh, and I think for 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 too long I. Not for too long, but to too great an extent during my life, um, I bowed down to the shibboleth of a of, 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 of pure intellect, you know, in, you know in, a, in, a, in a Kantian sort of way. <laughs> the um, so 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 that's one of my favorite stories, anyway. That, and 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 it. It reminds me to be. It tries to remind me uh, to be humble when it when it comes up on things in my understanding of what's good and what's not good.
1: So, mm. there's there's a. I'm inclined to say there's a. There seems to be a bit of the Book of Job in that story, but I I wonder if it's the other way around. I wonder if that. <laughs>
2: have you have you read Answer to Job? By, by Jung? By
1: Young. Yes. I, yeah. I, I have, but I, not a long time. And I, I remember that being my interpretation or sort of in, inheriting that interpretation for a while. But then I remember at some point it moved aside to um, Rene Girard's interpretation of the book of Job. I, I find that I like that a little bit better, but I can't remember Tell all me. the arguments of Jung. Well, Girard, I don't know.
2: I don't think. Tell me more.
1: <clears throat> Rene Girard, you, you'll find him fascinating as a fellow polymath he started out as a history major he was a frenchman started as a history mm-hmm. major and then came to the united states to study history um but then found as a frenchman that he was teaching french and then teaching french literature and he was r- teaching some of the great books and he was kind of learning them new for the first time and maybe just a chapter ahead of his class or his students and um he thought it would be really interesting to think about how these books, what these books have in common, as opposed to thinking about what they have um, different from one another, what they're how right. different. And he, he stumbled into this, this observation that a lot of the great books are interested in what he started to describe as the mimetic complex where um, characters are imitating each other, but beyond imitating each other, they're imitating Um, their desire for certain things and then he starts to sketch out this triangular relationship of desire um if i say that i've read this book and it's really really interesting to me you look at me desiring the book or desiring the knowledge in the book and then you i sort of facilitate your desire to want to read that book for example Um, yeah And he comes up with this whole theory and it actually becomes this unifying theory, which, you know, of course, is dangerous, but very interesting for, you know, all of human interaction. (laughs) He goes on to say that uh, this mimetic impulse will necessarily lead to conflict where you and I will maybe we aspire towards the same career or the same scholarship. And so we'll become the best of friends. And as we get closer and closer to that goal, we'll start to become rivals. and, and he kind of goes from there. He he's he proposes at some point that if that were the case, then the whole world would sort of be ensconced in conflict, and the only way to deliver us from that was to find some mechanism, some release valve. And he argues that that release valve was the propens- the human propensity towards scapegoating. Um, and then he uses that to sort of create a, a a theory of religion. So it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating theory to sort of work through the different phases of. Um, but I I find that that um he talks he, he does an essay on the book of job which is very very interesting and he reminds us or reminded me that job was actually a a leader and that he describes the crowd or like the the population of the populace as being uh sort of like a desert storm um and one point you're like sort of you know you're you're without any water at all and then the next second you're sort of drowned <laughs> and i um, yeah. think they championed him at one point and now when we come to him uh they're sort of taking everything away from him and he's sort of gerard proposes that he's the scapegoated leader which is really interesting
2: very interesting i mean the, the, the and the the whole thing about lucifer the bringer of light is a is a is a very interesting um uh very interesting interaction in in, in in theology. I mean, you know, Lucifer as Prometheus as as Shaitan, which is which is also like, light, light carrier. Uh, in, in the um, it, it, the tree of knowledge itself as original sin is mm. is intriguing to me. Um.
1: But I love your I love in your story with the Sufi man. I love that impulse towards like just wait. That seems like such a a wise religious yeah. or spiritual disposition <laughs> is to sort of right. be humble enough to just wait and watch. That's a that's a fascinating right. idea.
2: Yeah. 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 And I agree the, with uh, you that
1: the the impulse for religious people and non-religious people to speak on behalf of the universe uh I think you used the word well to say that's like blasphemous and and the highest form of yeah. idolatry I, i'm really curious i know that i sometimes like to ask if people think that all religions are sort of borrowing from the same well water but if you if you'll permit That's, me to, to get a little absolutely. well if, if absolutely you, if you'll permit me to, they, to sort of run with that it, a little bit yeah do you yeah in lieu of certain um <laughs> i've heard it said before that as religions fall, formal religions fall out of favor. They're being replaced with other religious attitudes, be it a, a religious attitude towards politics or a religious attitude towards fitness or whatever you want to say. Um, do you think it's possible that to sort of—I mean, you made the joke earlier—to sort of bend the knee at the altar of of the intellect? Um, well, do you think it's possible to treat science as a religion? or to have a a religious disposition towards science? And if so, is it possible that that being another religion is also drawing at the same well water? Call it an an all at the mystery of the universe or or whatever you want.
2: Um, it It is certainly possible for science to be idolatrous, and there's a whole lot of that that goes on. There is a lot of medicine that is supposed, that is seen as received wisdom and there are a number of different phenomena, uh, physiologic phenomenon that I, that I was taught in medical school to be 100% true and unquestioned wisdom from the third tablet that got lost somewhere along the way um, that have subsequently been proven to be absolutely wrong and we now believe 180 degrees, the opposite thing. Um, i think that the attitude of open curiosity is the best of science is the best of spirituality is the best of almost anything um but i think that a fellow who used to be um who who ended up as as Archbishop of Southern Ohio in the Episcopal Church it was a close family friend and a wonderful man. Uh, and and he used to talk about the distinction between prophet and priest. And one of his favorite expressions was Christ would have puked. <laughs> And and the distinction between. Um, between the wellhead and the report of the wellhead is the distinction between the moon and the finger pointing at the
1: moon right is that c.s lewis
2: Uh, yeah yeah i I don't is that c.s lewis i'm not sure who it is i've got so many things floating around in my head Mm -hmm. that i'm not i i often under misattribute but it's definitely an attribution Mm -hmm. um uh and and so so is it possible for some for that which is generally considered to be science to be idolatrous is the question and uh just like the Tao that can be spoken is not the real Tao, right. the science that can be spoken is not the real science
1: mm. or, or perhaps it's when when you think that the science has had its final word perhaps that's the Tao that's spoken right because the spirit of yeah, science right, that it's continuing, right? Right. right exactly.
2: There, there's no such thing as a final word. You know, mm. Is is kind of the is 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 kind of the take home the success of approximations of Occam's razor, are wonderful, wonderful, but but um, and and have gotten us well down some kind of road, uh, but but. To presume that we can get to the end of the road is, is, is idolatrous is idolatrous I think. Uh, how to get around it, how to get around it I don't know because as we grow older and accrete stuff uh, belongings experiences um, we we um, we encrust ourselves with carapaces that are progressively impenetrable to um, um, to truth, to light, to to, to what's really going on, yeah. uh, and unlearning that. Um, is either a life's work or happens in an instant, depending on which Buddhist school you happen to follow.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think to in, in the in the tradition of your friend's distinction between priest and prophet, I think yeah, my understanding of the prophets of various traditions is that they are the ones that penetrate through that crust when people yeah. have encrusted themselves, yeah. and I think. Interestingly, I I think that we bump into prophets all the time. It might be, you know, a drunk aunt or uncle at a barbecue who just, you know, cuts right through all the BS of your life and suddenly hits you. Right. right. But I think historically or 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 religiously or biblically, at least I can speak best to that. um, The prophets were able to do that for a whole society or for a whole sect. And, And I think if if you look at it psychologically, I think you bump into prophets all the time who sort of cut through all the um, encasings that maybe have kept you from the truth, whatever that truth might be in an instant.
2: Absolutely. The two the two Buddhist phrases are, if you see the Buddha on the street, kill, kill him. him. Yeah. yeah, I love that one. And, and, and if you don't see the Buddha in the next person you meet, you might as well stop looking yeah. because the Buddha is everywhere. Right. Um, sure.
1: Well, I think there's the, uh, and- I, I love, joseph campbell he comes up
2: oh he's wonderful
1: <laughs> my girlfriend jokes that, <laughs> my girlfriend jokes that that i think we have a bet that joseph campbell will be mentioned in every single podcast episode i do which i think she's right so far excellent good good Keep up. <laughs> and i said point. if you if you really want to be a safe bet it's either campbell or gerard are going to come up but um Ooh. and so far we're, we're two for two here but campbell has a story that the boy going to some buddhist monk and saying you know well, do I have Buddha consciousness? <laughs> and he's like, if if everything has Buddha consciousness, if the rocks, if the stones, the birds, everybody, you know, no, then do I? And I might be messing up the story, but the um the the monk sort of thinks about it for a second and he says, You're right, everything does have Buddha consciousness, but you do not. And the kid says, Well, why why don't I? And <laughs> And, he, and i forget what the punchline is but he, he's like because it's something like because the kid is sort of fixated on himself um he doesn't realize that he's part of the whole thing right he's sort of thinking of himself as a separate he, entity i'll have to go back and remember what the punchline is next time i want to tell that story yeah.
2: he has hidden himself from the buddha consciousness yeah uh yeah and and that's that's a very very interesting problem and it's it's almost irreducible there's an there's another buddhist story about uh, about a fellow uh who has been meditating for years and years mm. and and finally achieves Buddha consciousness and says ah i've got it and turns into a cockroach <laughs> <You know? laughs> and there's another story And another story about a about a novice who leaves his master to go be a mendicant priest, spends a few decades away and comes back and says, Master, look. And he walks across the the river and walks back on top of the water. And the master says, You spent 20 years learning to do something which I could have paid a ferryman a penny to do for me. So I, I I love all those stories I, and, and all of them illuminate different aspects of the lack of humility of the mm-hmm. of the um, uh, of the presumptuousness of of um, as, as being a, a major intrusion on on learning.
1: Well uh, let me add this one to your to your deck of of uh buddhist stories there's a story that joseph campbell tells about he was at sarah lawrence as you may may well know for years and at one point he went i'd be really curious to know which school he went to but he took the subway down and he visited some prep school and he visited a a all boys prep school and it was like a religious studies class and they were doing comparative religions and somebody invited him in to come talk about you know buddhism and buddhist buddha consciousness and he sort of thought that you know he has has these prep school boys in front of him and he's like how can i you know convey this message to them (laughs) and he he says okay well you know look up we you know there's all these lights in the room he says if one of the lights goes out you know nobody's gonna say oh well we really did like that bulb and you know (laughs) there was no other bulb like that you know the foreman comes he unscrews the light he screws in the other one and and he sort of says you know the western disposition is sort of an obsession with each of the bulbs but the eastern disposition is is that the bulbs are a vehicle for the light and he says when I look down in the room I, I don't see bulbs I see heads and he said you know the the western western disposition is an obsession with the vehicle um, but the eastern disposition is what is that vehicle the vehicle of and he's like it's it's consciousness right and he proposes and I sort of I'm inclined to to agree, perhaps because I'm just enamored with the man. But he proposes that myths were were sort of meant to facilitate, among other things, this jumping at some point in your life from an identification with the with the vehicle to uh, an identification with the light or with the consciousness. Um, really? And I think to bring up Eliot again, there's this incredible poem. I forget what it's called but he sort of talks about the, the phases of man or the phases of a person being that of the, the lunar phases. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of your life, you're sort of like total darkness. You're this unformed thing. And then people start, you know, you get a name, you, you get a family, you get all these things. The first book you read is the first book that was handed to you. But slowly this like individuality starts to come and that's like the cresting moon um and and the you know in the middle of your life or at some point in your life who knows when um perhaps it's different for everyone you're you're sort of like this fully actualized person god willing and he says you know that the thing that a lot of people miss is they they hold on to that and then that starts to recede and then there's a crisis as they start to you know who knows what the word is regress a little bit um he said in the eastern tradition the idea would be like at the fullness of your life uh you can almost imagine i forget what that's called maybe the equinox where the sun and the moon at at a certain moment are opposite each other in the sky and they're they're the exact same size he's like to to jump from that lunar identification that that of the vehicle to the solar identification of that of the light right that's sort of like the goal of the the buddhist disposition if that wasn't too rambling, yeah. but I love the idea of the lights and the vehicles, and
2: yeah, that's that's very nice. Yeah, and 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 it's not I mean, the 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 Western perspective, the 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 U.S. perspective is almost the uh, the zenith of of that individual perspective of the, hmm. of the hyper. Um I for perspective, which is unrealistic. I mean most of Europe is more blended east and west and and the east and and the indigenous peoples here uh, are are very much similar uh, the traditions. I don't know much about uh, South American mythic traditions. Hmm. but. Uh, but the indigenous tribes and and their uh, perspectives about relatedness and, and <coughs> are all very similar uh, it seems to me and, and it's, you it know, one you know i don't I don't quite know what it is that I'm still trying to learn, but I'm trying very hard to learn it. <laughs> Uh, have you read that's got to be worth something
1: God- that's yeah i think so i hope so have you read the white goddess no i've never heard oh. of it no. oh. i'm putting it oh. down the white goddess
2: yeah yeah it um hold on let me see if i can find it give me five seconds Uh, I'm blocking at the moment on who it was who wrote it, but it's one of the great poets of the early 20th century. And speaking of the um, um, uh, speaking of the um, basically feminist myths in um, uh, and, and uh, in Genesis myths, rather than the, the masculine myths of the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, but the the, the the Earth Mother myths, myths that preceded that for you know for the rest of recorded history prior to the uh, uh, prior to the beginning of the of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. Uh, Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition which are basically patriarchal but the matriarchal societies um, and, and the matriarchal perspectives uh, are critically important in understanding and more um, much more organic, much more fecund uh, than, than the masculineness which are inherently more individuated uh which i think is 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 an intriguing distinction
1: Mm. i've joked before and and i apologize if this sounds not pc but i I have a anthropological mythological reason for believing this but i sometimes joke um and some of the truth of it might be hidden in, in it's a little quippy but i sometimes joke that life happens to women and that women happen to men
2: it's <laughs> very interesting That's <laughs> i think
1: very- i think if you th- i mean we <laughs> i'm sort of aware of the time so i don't want to go on too long but i i think if you think about how the difference in and how women come to sexual maturity and how men come to sexual maturity for example i think that um I, and i stealing some of this from campbell but Campbell I think has said before that like throughout history a a young girl could be sitting there and then suddenly she becomes a woman it just happens to her and of course we can have like a a very hearty debate about like what it means to be a woman and but biologically that that process just happens to her um yeah and it's sort of like it's not a particularly joyous occasion um and it ushers in all sorts of like responsibilities and obligations and things that they have to think about and consider and if you compare that to the these the sexual maturation process of a male it, it it's almost like a joke how right. little responsibility right. a, a guy has on the other end of that and i think that as a result if you think about that anthropologically i i do think that Historically and anthropologically, at the risk of this being a really sweeping statement, I think that women have a closer relationship with the processes of life than men do. And I think that often think that, women facilitate that wisdom to men.
2: I think that's very true. And I think that it's very interesting that, that in some ways, the, the whole male dominance thing. Is, is the the cowardice of men um, looking um, the, the the cowardice of men afraid of losing the feminine. Mm-hmm. Some of that is a the feminine equivalent of gay panic. The, some of that is uh, is just the fear of being cut off from, from the from the generative. Um, but the if you think about if, if you think about um, male responses to sexuality, much of it is cut off, and misogynistic. I mean, and deliberately and aggressively, misogynistic, sadistic—it's just outrageous, outrageous. I mean, the the so so where does the unwillingness to celebrate come from? And I think that the unwillingness to celebrate that we often see comes from. comes from a recognition of want, a recognition of lack, a recognition of incompleteness on the male part. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, the white goddess is Robert Graves, by the way. He was okay. another poet. Um, I just looked that up while I was there. I didn't see the book over there Charlie. So but it's it's it it's a dense read. Uh, hmm. but it, it um, is, is very good and historically and, and very well footnoted. Uh, so it's, it's a worthy book. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that the... So, so the question is, are, are we now done with the, the masculine age and heading into the feminine? And is part of our society's Frantic disruptiveness right now a, a a recognition of or a concern about that, or—or or is this just as it has always been? And I think it's probably a combination of both. But I think that we are uh, sort of coming to the end of a great cycle of um, um, uh, a great cycle of. Andro- uh, of, of of masculinity. Uh, And I don't think that it can I don't think it can come early enough. The I think I think we need to I think we need to um, to get away from that because i think i think that as a society we we are driving ourselves into extinction through and misplaced individualism right mm-hmm. now I it's god awful problematic the the this the, the selfishness and the 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 tragedy of the commons now it makes for a, a difficult argument though because the the tragedy of the commons suggests that the feminine itself is the commons, if if one if one concatenates the metaphors. Um, but I I think that that generative element, uh, the uh, uh, that the fecundity of the commons is.
0: You, is
2: something that we have for far too long taken individualistic advantage of there's a, a tragedy that comes there's, there's another wonderful um phrase so so god and uh um who was who the um uh, uh who is the, the the greek guy who made the statue that my fair lady is based on no uh, i don't know anyway I don't, I don't remember at the moment. Anyway, so, so so, so, there's this Greek guy who thinks he's a pretty hot shit sculptor. And God says, oh, yeah, that's really nice. You got some good work there. And he said, ah, I'm better than you. And the, the uh, God says, oh, yeah? And the guy says, yeah, you want to have a contest?
1: Ill-advised.
2: God says, okay, okay. You make a statue? I'll make a statue. They both make statues. God's statue is magnificent. The artist's statue is magnificent too. The artist says, oh, you see, mine is better than yours. God says, who gave you the clay? <laughs> <laughs> and and if I have a perspective on God, that is the perspective I have on
0: God, I think. Hmm. Uh,
2: you know, it, it is a it's a profound, profound agnosticism and just wonder at, uh, at the complex dance of the of the universe. And it's just you know, I can I can get lost in 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 beatific wonder, at almost a moment's notice now when I when I just think about. Uh, when I think about biochemistry when I think about uh society when I think about genetics when I think this, almost anything there there's almost nothing that isn't sufficiently complex to lose me in wonder you know, mm. because of my ignorance uh, which which i I hope to maintain <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have a twelve o'clock call. <laughs> Okay. So I do have okay. to sign off. I can't, I couldn't think of a better place to end than your mm-hmm. than your opinions it's, on the beatific wonder of the world. Um, yeah. And I I can't tell you how thankful I am for for your deep and apparent love of the sea, so to speak. And, and if nothing else, I'm yeah. thankful for that phrase. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah, what a what a wonderful conversation. I look forward to meeting you in person. And I can't tell you how. Um, I can't tell you how Lily has brought light into this house as well, which is just a wonderful thing. And I look forward to meeting your whole family. in
1: I'm tearing up at the end. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, she, yeah. she will love to hear this. I, I think she's texting me right now.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Good. She's probably saying that I have to come down because the grandkids may be just about downstairs. So anyway. <laughs> is she down? Is have Lily there? Con- is Lily over? Yeah. She's still oh, yeah. here uh, yesterday. It was Carol's birthday, and we were going to have a birthday party, except that Sarah, Pat, myself, and briefly Carol, the girls, and Elizabeth were all more or less 2nd we're all more or less better, so today we are going to have the um, uh, Beef Wellington that <laughs> we were going to have yesterday, and then I think Lily and Adam were driving down later today, later tonight, or tomorrow morning.
1: So so we'll go good, celebrate good. Tell, tell carol i said happy birthday and i look forward to meeting you all hopefully in the near future
2: absolutely we'll do have a great one take care Bye thank
1: you bye-bye